the path of the witch is so unique. The, the gift of witchcraft. I was able to see, hear, and communicate with spirits. A very personal relationship between a person and spirit. Carnal lust and fun things like that. Working with different energies and spirits and communicating. Creating magic. Powerful yeah. ritual and powerful spells. She's actually sending me in the cold. The role of the witch is to make change. Let's it be, y'all. Let's it be. People ask me, like, okay, I'm a witch, and I don't know what to do. And welcome to That Witch Life Podcast. I'm Hillary. I'm your host today. And I'm joined by Courtney. Hello. And Kanani. Hello. My lovely co-host. Before we start this episode today, there are some things we want to say. First, we want to say that Black Lives Matter. It's really important right now to support and elevate our Black communities Um, what is happening to black people, uh, is unacceptable and there are many different ways to show support. Part of that is listening. There are organizations you can donate to. You can get out and protest. You can help educate other people. The important part is that we continue to hold and elevate the black community and that we continue to show our support in any way that we can. A couple of ways that you can support from afar if you are unable to support in person somewhere. One way uh, that you can support is by donating to the Minnesota Freedom Fund. It is a nonprofit organization dedicated to ending mass incarceration while uh, investing restorative justice. Um, A lot of people are uh, currently supporting this organization because they are also helping protesters with bail and to support protesters with with legal support. You can also donate to Black Visions Collective, an organization dedicated to Black liberation and expand, expanding the power of Black people through the Twin City and Cities metro area. Another organization is Reclaim the Block, which seeks to transfer funds from the police department to other areas of Minneapolis's budget that focus on community. These are all Minneapolis or Minnesota specific. In the coming weeks, we're going to share other opportunities to get involved or to uh, to donate to on our Facebook, Instagram, and our website. So keep an eye out there. Um, but we would like to take a moment to have a moment of silence to hold our Black community uh, and send them our love and support. Thank you for joining us in that. And thank you to those of you who are out there supporting the black community and helping to hold them and elevate them and support them in any way you can. How are both of you doing? I feel like that's a ridiculous question to ask, but I, I also would like to point out for a lot of people, if you're on Facebook Almost pretty much every single major city and many smaller cities also have local Black Lives Matter chapters. 
that you can uh, join on Facebook that helps to let you know when they have events or when they have classes or workshops, seminars, things like that, that can also help you to be informed of what's going on in your community and ways that you can help locally. Absolutely. And remember that this is, this struggle started a long time ago and its resolution is not coming anytime soon. But what, so what I have encouraged people to remember is that um, take things one day at a time, do what you can today. And remember that maybe you can't be out there on the front lines because you're either um, not well or you're too far away or just your life circumstances, you are not able to risk arrest. And all of that is absolutely valid. And um, remember that there will be another time. And not everybody has to be out in the streets in order to make a difference. Um, there are ways you can work virtually and maybe you don't have the money right now to donate to this cause. Or maybe you just have a dollar right? But you might have $5 later on and it will still be a need. This is a, this is a lifelong marathon, not a sprint and do what you can today. And also, uh, be good to yourselves. Okay. Especially if, if you are someone who is more likely, if you're a person of color is more likely to be a recipient of, of violence and you're, you're working through a trauma at the moment, make sure that you're taking time to care for yourself. Right. And if check in on um, check in on people who are isolated, check in on your friends of color um, and make sure that, you know, everybody has what they need. All right. Those are some really important ways that you can you can step up. I'm really glad that you pointed out that this is this is a marathon. This is not a sprint. Um, I have not. I have not been doing well the last few days. I've been incredibly angry and frustrated. And the reason for that is kind of some backstory. Back in 2001, okay, 19 years ago, I had a coworker and she was wonderful. She was so nice. She was so fun, so charismatic. And she was, she was a woman of color. And she was talking to me about how they, uh, it was when I lived in Seattle, her nephew, they paid for him to go to a private school. Now he went to a very elite school that a lot of, uh, millionaire athletes send their, uh, children to many of whom are children of color. She was telling me that in this school, part of the things that they do every year. And one of the things they have is they have school-wide assemblies where they teach the children how to try and talk to police so that hopefully they don't get shot and killed. This was in 2001. These were not poor black children. These were children from very affluent families, but that affluency was not going to help them if they were confronted on the streets by a police officer. And they were having to be raised and taught as children how they needed to behave because they needed to behave differently because there's a chance they're going to be shot and killed by a police officer. That was 19 years ago. And we're still here. And I am so angry. 
because it's not okay. It is not. And it makes me ang- what makes me the most angry is the people I see being silent. Because looking the other way is not an option. The consequences are too high. This is too important. There is absolutely no excuse that these children have to be raised this way, that this is their reality. People, I would have never known that. That was not my reality. That is not my children's reality. That is not the reality of majority of the people that I know. So people do need to wake up and they do need to listen and they do need to understand that your reality is not everyone else's reality and this is not okay. And it is only something that white people can change. I think that really important for us to remember that that exact thing which is that not all our realities are the same and just because your reality is different than someone else's doesn't make their reality or experience invalid less frustrating less terrifying so i think you know as white people for those of for those of our listeners who are fellow white people It's our job to make sure that we listen to black communities, that we give them space to speak and not to speak over them, that we do the work to educate other white people, and that we continue to hold police accountable, our government accountable, and people that harm these communities accountable. And be willing to lose friends over this. Yeah. Also remember, witches, we have always stood at the fringe. Witches have always been the ones that have been aiming to take down the abusive people in power. In many ways, this is how witchcraft began. So there is not, there is, this is a, a grand calling and an opportunity to whether it's your, you know, whether it's your, the tools you have as a person or your, you know, tools you have through via your privilege, we all have some form of privilege one way or another um, and use those tools and also use your magic. That's something I think we wanted to um, talk about some today as we, we get into further into our episode. But Absolutely. be willing to lose friends. I've lost a lot just this weekend because of my Facebook oh my posts. <laughs> oh my God, seriously. And I think it's, it's important to remember that, you know, it, you might lose friends over this. You might lose family over this. That just because it's your friend, your good friend that you've had forever, or your uncle or your parent or your cousin, they need to be held accountable. And one th- And then you can do that by holding them, continuing to hold them accountable and continuing to talk to them um, and, and be willing to sacrifice that because, you know, you all already live in a world of, of many privileges as a white person. Um, and so holding other white people around you accountable is critical. And there's also, there needs to be a willingness to make mistakes in how you say things Absolutely. and what you say. Um, and a lot of times people, really well-meaning white people are afraid to, 
speak up because they might get the terminology wrong. They might say something, they might miss a nuance. Hey, you know what? Accept that it's going to happen and just roll with it. And if someone corrects you, thank them. Say, thank you so much. And don't be, and don't become defensive if the tone is heavy. Um, remember, this is coming from a place of hurt. And even if you're well-meaning, it can, you know, words, words can hurt even from well-meaning people, sometimes, all, sometimes especially from well-meaning people. And if you get called out on it, just say thank you and make the correction, right? And then get back in there and keep doing it. But don't hold back from calling it out when you see it because you're afraid of losing friends or because you might say it wrong. Go ahead and accept you will lose friends and you will say it wrong sometimes. But the work has to be done. Yeah, absolutely. I, I have, I've just, I mean, I have completely, you know, settled my mind to, I don't want those friends. Yeah. So I'm yeah. perfectly content with that being the outcome. And those are not the kind of people that I want one in my life, but also in the lives of my children, because this is not at all what I'm instilling in my children or the values that I want for them. So, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of what we can do is not only, you know, things that we can say, but it's also just your actions. It's also what you're saying and how you're behaving and, and the, you know, what you're showing your children. I'm talking to my children about this. Um, I, I am going to have us post a link, uh, to our website that lists, um, a bunch of children's books. It was like the 30, it was like 31 anti-racist children books. I've sent it to my children's school. We're putting them in the school library. Um, I'm working to make sure that we have at least one or two copies of each of those books that the kids can check out. And it just talks about um, the plight of other people that the children may not understand. There's a lot of things that we can do to expose ourselves, to open our minds, to expose our children. And the people who are un if you find out someone is, is adverse to that or unwilling to be a part of that, that should be a huge red flag of that is clearly maybe someone who does not need to be in your space, sharing your energy and around, no matter how painful that might be. So Courtney, I know you, one, we need to pull a tarot card for June, but I also know that you had some suggestions uh, for full moon magic people can do, uh, coming up Friday, June 5th. Yes. Uh, to, ha- to specifically, um, around social justice. Yeah, absolutely. So let's start by pulling our tarot card for June. All right. Uh, still using the Waitsmith deck. So I'm still, uh, most of my stuff is still in boxes. All right. So what have we, what do we all need to be aware of in the month of June? The emperor. Okay. That's very interesting. (laughs) Um, The emperor often uh, represents structure, represents power, and it can represent the patriarchy. So the established system, the accepted norms, and that power can be abusive and that power must be challenged. Alternatively speaking, when we look at this personally, the emperor is about maintaining our own sovereignty and remembering where we hold our power and standing firm in that. So there's two things. One, to challenge the emperor outside of us in the systems that are uh, pressing numbers of us um, in the systems that give those of us uh, the privilege to turn away and refuse to turn away and say we're not turning away. 
But then alternatively, it's also about looking and saying, where is my emperor and what do I have sovereignty over? And remembering that that it refused to let anyone take that away from you. So those are the lessons of the emperor for the month of June. So the next full moon is this coming Friday, June 5th. Um, this is a time of a lot of eclipse magic. So I hope you all checked out our last episode with Damon Stang talking about the different eclipses and how that may be able to integrate into your magic. I'm not going to go through all the astrology for this coming moon. What I am going to say, though, is that the full moon shines light into darkness. If you're out in the countryside, and I have been out in the woods in the middle of the night when there is a full moon, and it literally is as bright as day. So the full moon can shine a light on that which wants to be hidden. And I encourage people, especially if you're feeling challenged right now, of knowing where your place is in uh, the movement for justice, to, uh, to follow this spell. So what you'll need is a mirror and a, a candle, literally any color will do. And then set the, um, preferably it'd be some kind of handheld mirror and be able to set that candle on the mirror. If you don't have that, you can set um, like a taper candle in front of your bathroom mirror, that's fine. And what you wanna do is turn off all the lights so that the only light is from that candle and then look at your reflection in the darkness. And then call out to the moon, O great being of light, show me my steps forward. Show me where my power is. Show me what I can do with what I have at my fingertips. Help me be the light for others. Help me be the solution. And then if you're able to try to get out into the actual full moonlight, it can be tricky. The last couple of moons, I've tried to go out and capture the moon in water and, and get a film as I promised, but the moon has not risen um, until very, very wee hours of the morning, which just, I need to sleep. So I, I don't know when, where the moon is going to be in your part of the world, or if you even got, uh, but if you've got a clear night and the moon is out, go outside even for just a few minutes and let that full moon touch your, your touch your body and then say the prayer again. And then just wait and see. You'll, there may be simple things, little things you can do, or it might be a bigger call to action, right? And one thing to remember is that the spirits do not give us what we are not able to do. So even if the task before you seems really big, it came to you because you are able to fulfill it. I know uh, I have my problems with Mother Teresa. I really do. But I, I do like one thing that she said was, um, I know God will never give me more than I can handle. I just wish he didn't trust me so much. I think a lot of us feel that way when, uh, when, when spirit work comes to us. Um, yeah. And uh, just, just trust in that you will be able to accomplish what has been set before you. And uh, let that full moon light be your guide as to where those, those things are. And we will have the, the write-up for this prayer will be on our website. So thatwitchlife.com. That's such a great uh, prayer. I love that. I love that spell. What a great way to, I think, I think a lot of people, um, right now are feeling like they don't know what to do or what they can do, um, with what they have. And I think that's such a great way to call that in, to be able to figure that out for yourself. So we actually have a very exciting announcement to tell everyone. So as I know you've seen, um, our listeners have seen that during the pandemic, we've been putting out bonus episodes, uh, so that we are having an episode every week. And our big announcement, 
that we are actually permanently moving to weekly episodes. And we want to thank everyone for the support we've been given uh, as we've put these bonus episodes out. And we are thrilled to make this part of our normal podcast. When you get more time with you, you get more time with us. <laughs> I know. I really don't think the listeners thought this through because I'm a lot. <laughs> We're like, let's support these, these bonus episodes, having no idea that they'd be stuck with us forever. <laughs> um, but yeah, we are really excited to offer that to our listeners. Uh, that also means that we'll get to have way so many more amazing guests on. And I cannot wait until uh, to meet some of them that I haven't already met and to bring some of the people I know already on um, and to, to bring some pretty interesting topics to everybody. I would love to welcome our guest today, uh, Misha Magdalene. Misha is a multi-classed, multi-geek, multi-queer witch and sorcerer with a degree in gender studies and a slightly odd sense of humor. Only slightly, just slightly odd. A little bit. A little bit. They're the author of Outside the Charm Circle, Exploring Gender and Sexuality in Magical Practice, and the similarly named Outside the Charm Circle blog on Patheos. They are an initiate of the Anderson Fairy and Gardnerian Wiccan traditions of witchcraft and have dabbled recklessly in both modern ceremonial magic and grimoiric Goetia. They live in the Pacific Northwest with their polymath partner and two adorably destructive black kittens <laughs> who have a giant tower right palace they do yep we were just talking about how i think my pets are the most spoiled in the world but actually misha and their partner hold a legitimate <laughs> record for being the most spoiling of their animals of all time <laughs> <laughs> these royalty yeah. kittens and their throne <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're just really thrilled to have you uh, on the podcast today. Thank you so much. I am so delighted to be here. Oh my God. I'm going to tell a story about how Misha and I became friends. Oh God. Do it. So, Do it. Here you go for <laughs> again. <laughs> no, I have to tell a story because it's so funny. Okay. So um, like a long, long time ago, like two years ago, maybe three years ago, we um, were up at the uh, Beyond the Gates Festival, which happens about every other year at Trout Lake Abbey in Southern Washington. And uh, we were camping and it was a bitterly cold night because the Columbia Gorge gets really cold so in the summertime. Cold. It's so cold. super so cold. It was so cold. I don't think I ever have been that cold. Like my face was painful underneath all the, that was the only thing that was exposed. And I was so cold. So we were sitting, I think you brought a space heater, didn't you? Is that why no, we came? No, no. Th- 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 this gets better. We were under a little 10 by 10 pop-up canopy and it was I think like eight of us and we were all huddled around a plastic bin full of cookies <laughs> with about seven or eight bottles of wine sitting on top of it. <laughs> there was no heat. We and were just, all I just remember heat. I remember warmth. It came from the cookies. <laughs> and, and and probably the wine. And definitely the wine. Oh my God. And and I kept thinking I was gonna go to this meditation. And then there was a certain point where I realized that was never going to happen. And we just stayed up all night long. And yep. I think we cleared like two of those giant Costco-sized boxes of Cheez-Its. Yep. That <laughs> is my what pre, happened. My pre-celiac days. And we just went in. And mostly it was me. And then um, a few <laughs> months later, I was up in Seattle doing a book talk um, at an event. And Misha was there. And I'd been seeing online 
that uh, Misha was so close to finishing her first manuscript. And then they said, yeah, all right, I've finally done it. And I said, oh, I'm going to bring Misha a present. So I did, went to the grocery store and bought a box of Cheez-Its. And I put it in a really nice gift bag. <laughs> with like really fancy ribbon and paper. And when I saw Misha, I was just like, I really want to celebrate you because you finished your book and I know how hard it is. And the look on their face was just so soft. And it's like, a gift for me? Why, thank you. And then they opened it and they went, God damn it, Courtney! <laughs> <laughs> and, and the best part is their partner walked up and said, oh, thank you. And just took the box of Cheez-Its and walked away. Just, just jacked the Cheez-Its and bolted. <laughs> just not even like, not even like Kanani, like grab a dash. They just grabbed it and went, nice. And it just walked off like, this is mine now. Oh my God. And that's when we knew we were going to be friends for the rest yep. of eternity. Yep. There it was. <laughs> it's so funny. And then they texted me saying that they were actually um, enjoying their cheeses with a very expensive gin. They were like, yes. <laughs> oh my God. I, I, I believe it was uh, a Hendrix gin. So, yeah. <laughs> oh my God. It was a classy, classy evening. That's really, really funny. Yeah. Well, I mean, so that's what, how I. What do you pair with Cheez-Its? Um, I don't pair anything with it anymore. But when I did pair it, it would be with whatever I can find. Usually red wine, though. I really liked red wine with Cheez-Its. I uh, felt so classy. I really but I liked, yeah, I liked cheap red wine with Cheez-Its. I just wanted to stay in the same theme. Sure. You know? Which is why when you came to see me, I sent you away with really cheap wine and more Cheez-Its. <laughs> it, uh, I like, I like Cheez-Its with cheese. <laughs> like, there you go. And Cheez-Its, because I'm like, give me the cheese everything. <laughs> I liked the white cheddar ones. Those were so good. And that was like, when I when I got the celiac diagnosis, two things crossed my mind. Oh, my God, I'm never going to be able to eat my dad's turkey stuffing at Thanksgiving again, which is a tragedy, an equal tragedy. I'm never going to get to eat a whole box of sharp white cheddar Cheez-Its ever again. Because oh <laughs> the gluten-free ones what? just don't cut it. I mean, they're okay, but they are not the same. No, that, that that's a tragedy. Mm-hmm. That's a fair. I thing. know. Yeah, <laughs> Misha was really sad when I told them. I was like, "This I was. is what happened." <laughs> They're like, "Oh my god!" But so you were with me my last time with Cheez-Its, which I think is really special too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say, I'm delighted to have you know had that moment with you, Courtney. I know. It's just like that I was able to pass it on. Anyway, whatever. What is wrong with me today? I am so full of chocolate. <laughs> so many things a- every day. <laughs> I need chocolate. <laughs> Kanani is like quiet and then it's like, time to insult Courtney. La, 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 la. And cue. The moment has arrived. Oh, man. Okay. Reel in, children. Uh- <laughs> okay, Hillary. I'm going to turn this man around again. <laughs> Misha, I have to deal with this all the time. I just cannot. Uh, anyway, we are again really excited to have you here, and I have to say, I really loved your book. Um, Thank you so much. I thought it was I thought it was really amazing for a couple of reasons. Um, as a queer woman myself, I thought it was really amazing to see a book written from um, from such a well worded standpoint about a the experience that queer people have in, in magical communities, but also in how to also a gu- as a guide in how to really find find that within yourself to be your true authentic self. I think a lot of times we read um, books and articles that are uh, 
really insightful and provide a lot of knowledge, but it, it doesn't always ask us to look deeper into ourselves. And I'm like, man, I wish I had this when I was younger <laughs> like mm-hmm. to, to start to, to have something to look t- at and, and when I'm trying to examine my own self and the feelings that I was having. Um, so thank you for doing that for me and for queer communities. And also as a way to help educate the magical community in general, I thought it was a such, such a well-worded book uh, with so much insight um, and had me thinking about things that even I hadn't thought of. <laughs> so so I, I really value that. Um, thank one you. of the, one of the one of the things that the towards the beginning of the book that I'm just going to read briefly that I found uh, so validating um, was it the section says what's in this book and it says my over overarching thesis is that most modern forms of magical and devotional practice have valorized cisgender heterosexuality to the exclusion of all other expressions of gender and sexuality and in doing so have cut themselves off from both the full spectrum of lived experience and a depth of magical practice and I just think that is so true. Thank I really you. That that was that particular sentence has been the core idea at the heart of the book. Uh, basically, from the very beginning, when it started as a um, the, the book originally started as a submission to an anthology that uh, wound up getting turned down, as it happens. But I kept the submission and worked on it and added stuff to it, and it just kind of grew and grew and grew. And uh, somewhere along the way, it became uh, part of part of it became the writing sample that turned into my blog at Pathios, and it continued to grow and grow and grow. And eventually, uh, Tempest, uh, Laura Tempest Zakroff, was kind of like, you know, you're writing a book, right? <laughs> You're like newsflash. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's a running joke with me and Tempest that uh, I blame her for the blog at Pathios because uh, she and I were at Mystic South together, and we're hanging out with Ari and Jason Mankey, and in the midst of whatever conversations we were all having, Tempest's voice just sort of rung out clear above the din. And she was like, hey, Misha, you should totally write a blog for Jason for Pathios. And I went, uh, and Jason swiveled on me in one of those hotel chairs and went, oh, do you write? And I went, um, yeah, I've got a thing I could send you. And that was, um, that was part of what turned into Outside the Charmed Circle. Which I must say is absolutely required blog reading. Yep. Because um, I, I was going to say this. It's not that I'm a blog hater, but when you spend as much time writing and reading about witchcraft as I do, you don't always jump up and go read more blogs about witchcraft. But whenever Misha posts something, I'm like, click, got to see, because <laughs> they are not afraid to go in and really say the really hard truths about the problems with the witchcraft community. And, but it's always in a way that is, is, um, is, is firm, but not unkind. And I just love the way you start your, I think you start with, hello, my dears, or something like that. And it's like, oh, Misha's talking to me. And who's going to say, oh, you dear. Hello, beautiful creatures. That's what you say. Okay, thank hello, you. I'm like, there's something that was very sweet. And um, that, so that's definitely a, a blog y'all want to subscribe to and keep in your rotation. Oh, thank you. So 
we have some questions for you. And the first question is what we asked all of the people that come on our podcast. And that is, how did you first know that you were a witch? Or when did you first know that you were a witch or a magical person? So this is one of those questions that I've been asked a few times. And I've always tried to come up with an answer that is both interesting and honest and I always feel like I just sort of babble on for a few minutes about, well, you know, I had like read books and I was really into fantasy novels and I ran across da 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 and all these kinds of things. Um, and it always comes out sounding really incoherent, which I, you know, is probably accurate. <laughs> but um, the short version is that I've always been drawn to the numinous to the spooky perhaps, but also to the, the real, the profound in life, um, which sounds super pretentious as those words are coming out of my mouth, but I've always been drawn to experiences that made me feel more connected to a larger reality. And I didn't really find that in a lot of mainstream religious venues. And then one day um, I was at a friend's bookshop. And in the back room at his bookshop, he had this table that was set up and it had a bunch of stuff on it. There were candles and, you know, there was a knife and a cup and a few other things. And... You know, I kind of put two and two together and was like, okay, there's this something sort of like occult or something going on here. And I went and asked him and was like, hey, what's with the stuff there? And he thought about it for a moment and went, hang on a sec. Went in the other room, came back, handed me a copy of Drawing Down the Moon and The Spiral Dance. And he said, go away and read these, come back and we'll talk. And that was when I learned that this draw to the numinous, this draw to a sort of reality that was bigger than the seen and known and visible, um, had a name or several names. And that this was a thing that people were doing out in the real world. And, you know, I could do that too. And it kind of all unfolded from there. That's such a great story. I love that you're like, hey, what is this? And they're like, okay, honey, just read these books first, though. <laughs> <laughs> right. Let's, let, let's get you some vocabulary to work with. Okay. I'm going to need you to start here, and then we can talk more. I love that. And I'm right. really glad that you had that experience. I think it's those are kind of such pivotal, pivotal experiences when, um, you know, when we look to people for, you know, what is this? Or why do I feel this? Or, or I, I don't know what to do with this, this draw that I have to this. I'm really curious. Uh, that those people provide resources that are, that are really valuable. And it, for me, it was really formative because it taught me from the jump that magic, that witchcraft uh, not only was a thing, but it was a thing that existed in the context of other people, that it was a thing that existed in the context of groups and traditions and, not even in a formalized sense of I belong to the thus and such tradition, but 
in the sense that this is stuff that's done in relationship with other people and with the world around you. I love hearing that because so often we hear about witches saying what witchcraft does for them, but witchcraft, even if you're a solitary practitioner, witchcraft is somewhat of a communal act because it is based on what's going on with other people and the environment around you. And you don't become a witch in isolation. You become a witch either because someone teaches you or because experiences you have either with the other world or with other people prompt you to take this path. So I really appreciate that you remind us Witchcraft in context of others is uh, is really the fertile soil from which this grows. Absolutely. I also think drawing down the moon is an excellent uh, kind of first exposure because a major part of the book and the telling of the story is the immense amount of differences between all the practices. It would be really amazing to kind of start out with that and... And no, you know, it kind of, I think, can give people not so much the feeling of I have to do this right, um, because you're just immediately exposed to the fact that there is a million different ways to do this. Absolutely. Um, You know, getting kind of the one-two punch of drawing down the moon and the spiral dance, I approached witchcraft from this just immediately with this understanding of, oh, there's all different kinds of witchcraft. Um, And, you know, even things like what's called Wicca, there's all different kinds of Wicca out there to say nothing of, you know, things that aren't Wicca. And so there isn't a one true right and only way, which meant that when I started reading more stuff and ran across people who were like, there is the one true right and only way to do this, I went, no, there's not. Nope. Nope. <laughs> Misha, how did, how did you, as you kind of became part of this greater magical witch Wiccan community, how did you navigate gender, gender identity and sexuality within a community that so, so predominantly heteronormative? Oh boy. How did you navigate that? <laughs> I call it, I call it heteroborative. <laughs> Nice. Um, Courtney, you're going to have to go sit in the corner now. No, I am not. (laughs) I'm going to stand on the roof. I think when when you're coming into that community as a a new witch, when you're kind of starting to explore that community, how did you navigate that? Um, That is a really excellent question. And... The the sort of flip answer is poorly. Um, so when I first started, uh, when I first started practicing in the context of working with other people, I started realizing, oh, this whole like boy girl goddess god male female polarity thing is really super important to other people. So I guess I have to like learn to do that. And, you know, I worked with that for a while as, you know, my primary mode of practice. Um, in the late nineties, I became an initiate of British traditional Wicca, um, first in a tradition called Kingstone, which comes out of the central Valley of California. And then later as a gardenerian and, I worked in this particular modality of praxis um, for a long time, but I was never super comfortable with it 
because there was this stress on not just polarity in the sense of active, passive, or projective, receptive, but specifically tying those to gender identity, gender expression, and gender roles. It's like, I'm fine with being projective or receptive, uh, you know, if we're going to use that language, but saying that that means male and female, mm, that's really squirrely to me. And it became increasingly squirrely the longer I went on. Um, I, at one point, had a conversation with an elder of one of the traditions that I was in. And I remember, I think I actually wrote about it in Outside the Charmed Circle. I remember approaching this person and saying, hey, so what if, as a teacher... I have a student who comes to me or a seeker who comes to me and wants to be instructed and they're honorable and they're intelligent and they're devoted and they're every good thing that you would want in a student of the craft and they're a trans person. And this elder thought about it for a moment and then they said something that stuck with me for low these many years they said, I would never tell someone else not to teach or initiate that person, but I wouldn't be able to do it myself because either they're the gender they say they are or they're the gender they were born as. And one way it's perfectly okay and the other way it's completely wrong. And I wouldn't be able to tell the difference, which would, I, I wouldn't be able to tell which it was. Wow. And that was probably the beginning of the end of my time in in Brit Trad Craft, uh, until relatively recently, actually, but that's a different story. Basically, I went away from that conversation and was like, I don't think that there's a place for me in this craft the way it's practiced. And that's how I ultimately wound up um, circling and eventually landing in the Anderson fairy tradition, which is extremely queer and extremely comfortable with uh, fluidity of gender and sexuality. And that's not to say that fairy is better than Gardnerian craft or something. They're just, they're very different. And I'm happy to report that, um, here in 2020, there are an awful lot of Gardnerians who are really comfortable with uh, queer and trans people being part of the tradition. This is actually something we were just talking about, is that um, I know a very excellent non-binary priest in the, uh, the Gardnerian tradition. And um, so it's one thing I'm hoping we'll have them come on the show at some point and talk about uh, their experiences and, and what that means. It's such a tradition that's built on so much of a, of a binary praxis, so to speak, right. that they, that there are now priests who don't identify in that spectrum and are still being able to find a lot of fulfillment and satisfaction within that work. Yeah. And I think, uh, what's going on in the Gardnerian community around issues of gender, especially as, you know, it, it our traditions are kind of a microcosm of the broader culture in which they are ensconced, of course. And I feel like 
the issues that the Gardnerian community is working with and in some cases struggling with around gender are just a reflection of what's going on in the broader pagan community, in the magical community. And I love that there are more and more people in Gardnerian craft coming forward and saying, well, I'm non-binary, I'm genderqueer, and that doesn't impair my ability to work in this tradition and to be really effective and to be a good priest, priestess, priestex, whatever term you want to use. I know that we're not on, you know, we're strictly sound, so people can't see what we're doing. Um, but with, you know, all the stuff and me going crazy, uh, I picked some homemade lavender uh, from my patio and I've got it shoved up my nose right now because I'm so agitated when I hear about things like this. <laughs> I, I've just got a sprig of lavender up each of my nostril because I'm just inhaling like as, as strongly as I can just to like, calm me down, calm me down. So, you know, as you obviously navigated this within the community, what led you to find the connection between magic and gender or sexuality and, and how did those things intersect and how do you feel that they elevate each other? So, <clears throat> so I took something of a sabbatical from witchcraft, paganism, magic, the whole enchilada for about, I want to say five years I just mm. like stepped away from the community, stepped away from everything and really, um, you know, took time away to focus on me. And then my partner and I started slowly re-engaging with things. You know, we went to some events, met some people. Um, the first event we went to, we, we met Tempest. And as I said, I, I blame Tempest for everything. So uh, through her, we met a whole bunch of other people and it was great. Um, so around about that same time, I was finishing up or in the process of finishing up my degree program at the University of Washington. Um, and I, uh, got my degree in gender, women, and sexuality studies. So I spent a couple of years really immersed in feminist analysis and queer theory and, and thinking about, well, ev literally everything through this lens, you know, watching movies and going, hmm, feminist analysis on, on this movie, um, and there was an essay that I read uh, for one of my classes written by a cultural anthropologist named Gail Rubin. Uh, the essay is called Thinking Sex. And in there, she posits this frame for looking at what we do and don't find acceptable or desirable or okay about sexuality in our culture. And basically, there's all the stuff that's Inside the charmed circle, which is, you know, monogamy, heterosexuality, missionary position, sex. And then there's the stuff that's in the outer limits, the stuff that is, if you'll pardon the term, outside the charmed circle. So not heterosexuality, not monogamy, not missionary position, sex, and so on and so forth. And this framing just blew me away. I was like, wow, that is really 
cool and interesting and just makes me think about all these things in really different ways. And then I had this thought of, hmm, what if we use this as a lens to look at esoteric spiritual practice? What if we looked at paganism and magical practice through this lens of what is socially permitted and what isn't? And my brain went, oh, magic is queer. And the <laughs> entire book unfolded from fell that. Out. Just fell it out. Fell out, of your, fell out of your head right there. Yep. It, it, it reminds me of something that Dakota St. Clair, who does the When God Was Queer podcast, also required listening for all witches. And one of the first stories that they tell is about how uh, there were trans women priestesses in ancient, I believe it was ancient Rome, might have been ancient Greece, um, and that they would, part of their initiation ceremony into these these mystery traditions would be a public castration of themselves. They would do this to themselves and then um, basically fling their parts out into the gathered crowd. And if you were hit by one of these, the pieces of the priestess's body that she had, you know, had cut from herself, uh, you would, one, receive many, many blessings. And then also I think if it hit your place of business, you would be required to care for her while she was healing. And Dakota, if you're listening, I know I'm screwing up a lot of the details here. I apologize. I will direct people to the episode where they could get the cur- all the details correct. But anyway, it was it was under the um, impression that the gender non-conforming person or the trans person who, or um, basically essentially the, the queer person was the keeper of the magic. And that was part of, not just in the ancient Greek and Roman cultures, a lot of different cultures, this is the case. So this is not something new that Misha is tapping into. Oh, no. This is actually something very, very old. Oh yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. It, it's very old and it is, all the world round, uh, Tomas Prower wrote Queer Magic, looking at uh, LGBT plus spirituality from around the world. Um, yeah, queer people have always been magical, where, you know, we haven't been pariahs. In some cases, both. You know, um, I, I have joked with people that the premise of my book is basically John Waters with a cigarette going... Everything you love is queer. Deal with it. (laughs) (laughs) I love John Waters. (laughs) John John Waters is one of my idols. I, uh, he, he is phenomenal. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. But, um, but yeah, I, I wrote outside the charmed circle because, I was seeing all the ways in which all of this stuff that we do is queering spirituality in the way that uh, being trans or gender nonconforming or gender queer is queering gender. I think it's really, I mean, when I was reading the book, but also just hearing that epiphany you had that queer is magic. It was like such a powerful thing for me to read. Like, I mean, you know, I've always, I mean, obviously when you're first figuring out that you're queer, there's a lot of questions, but you know, once I realized and identified as a queer person, I really embraced that. But I think that I never like put two and two together about how that affects magic and my magic Mm -hmm. and my practice. So I love, I mean, I love hearing a, that epiphany that you're like, well, duh, (laughs) duh. 
you know, and that, and that it inspired this really incredible book and, and, and a way to, to help other queer people in magical communities to really feel the power of who they are and how it relates to their practice is such a, a, a such an amazing thing. Um, Thank you. And, you know, I know we have, Oh, absolutely. Thank you. Um, and I know we have listeners that are probably in that space for themselves, struggling to navigate being a queer person in their communities. Is there, are there, is there any advice you can give them for people that are there? Oh, <laughs> um, I mean, like, you know, I know we don't have like 17 hours. Misha lowers the shades and locks the door. How much time do we have? (laughs) This question, I'll do it in five minutes. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, totally. In in 30 seconds or less. Um, So I, when I turned in the manuscript for Outside the Charmed Circle, uh, the first draft, I wound up in a conversation with my editor, Heather Green, um, who was marvelous and wonderful. And at one point she said, so who do you see as the audience for this book? And I said, well, I feel like there's kind of two audiences. Because on the one hand, I really want this to be a resource for cisgender, heterosexual pagans who don't get queerness and don't understand transness and are kind of going around, you know, really sort of clueless about these things and who really want clues. But on the other hand, I really also want to write the book I wish I'd had when I was a 15-year-old queer baby witch. Hmm. And Heather said, write that book. Write that book. That is where your passion lives. You know, you write that book and the cisgender heterosexual people who need it will find it. But so in a sense, all of the advice that I have is kind of there in the book. Um, Not to be like, well, just go read the book and that'll solve all your problems. No. Um, The best advice that I can offer is to work out for yourself who you know yourself to be who you authentically are. And when you know that, don't let anything take that from you. And kind of paired along with that, it's okay to not know, and it's okay that that changes over time. You know, my sense of who I am has changed drastically and dramatically over the course of my life, which doesn't make any of the things that I was at previous points not true. But, you know, there was a point when I thought, oh, sure, you know, I'm fine being straight. And then it's like, "Mm, no, I'm really not. That's just not who I am. It doesn't make who I believed myself to have been a lie. It just means my understanding of myself changed over time. And if our understandings of ourselves and our lives, if our experiences don't change who we are, what are we doing? You know, we may as well be playing Xbox. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, I think that's so true. And I think that, um, I think that we owe ourselves that, uh, grace to say like, we change, I mean, like all of us, I personally, 
have changed so much, so dramatically in my lifetime. If I look at who I was when I was 10, when I was 15, when I was in my 20s, you know, as, as you grow, you change both in, I mean, in so many ways. And that includes how you see yourself and, and what your true authentic self looks like. Right. And I think that that's such a powerful reminder that, you know, you don't owe it to anyone to explain why, you know, when you were way back when, why you felt you were one way and why now you feel you're another way. You don't owe that shit to anybody. No, you don't. <laughs> you don't. And there is in Western culture, um, that being the culture that I'm familiar with, there's a real attachment to this idea of you figure out who you are and then that is concrete. That is an absolute and it stays that way forever. And lived experience suggests that's just not true. Um, Hmm. You know, there are things about me that have always been true and will likely always be true. You know, I love books. I love cats and, you know, but there are things about me. Cheez-Its. Cheez-Its. You love Cheez-Its. I love Cheez-Its so much. I do. (laughs) The one true Cheez-It. But I I also, I think that in the queer community, um, there's also a lot of pressure to figure out where your queerness lies and then to clutch onto that and say, yep, here it is. And it is perfectly hermetically sealed and doesn't change. There are no smudgy edges to it. Um, you know, it's, I, I am this particular kind of queer and that will never change. And I mean, I know that's not true. Just looking at myself and my friends, like, people change over time. And so, you know, I, I've had friends who were, I am straight. Okay. Actually I'm bi. Actually, you know what? I'm really just into, you know, people like me. And I think that we need to be more comfortable letting people be who they are. Even if that who they are is, I don't know what's going on. I'm, I just got here. I'm trying to figure this out. Thank you for that reminder. I think that we, that's also a really good reminder that like, we don't have to have it all figured out all the time. <laughs> and it's one of the things that I've been struggling with, like since I've moved back to Portland and it's not, I mean, it's, it's that when I left Oregon, it was like, I'm going to be a star in the theater. And instead I became a big, crazy, loud witch. And there's been some, and I don't feel like there's anybody who's put this on me, but me, but coming back to the people who I used to know before I left, there's a sense of, do they think I'm a failure? Do they think that I've gone nuts? Do they think I've wasted an opportunity because I'm doing all this loud brazen witchcraft stuff? And I think that hearing you as the reminder, Misha, that we have to give ourselves permission to change. Yeah. And yeah, especially as you're exposed to, different experiences and different people that maybe you just had no idea this was in you because you didn't know what it was. And then suddenly you see it outside of yourself and you go, actually, that is me. I didn't know it because I didn't know what that looked like. It's, you know, to to compare things to food, because that's what I'm going to do for everything. It's somebody once said to me, how can you crave sushi if you never tasted it? How do you know that's part of something that you love or it's part of what you need for yourself if you never had it? And suddenly you do experience it and you go, wait, that's me. Love it. 
here's this piece of myself I didn't know was missing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I am a non-binary trans person. And I've only been identifying that way for the past few years because, honestly, I didn't have the language to convey those ideas until relatively recently. You know, until the past few years, I was always like, well, yeah, I mean, I was born with certain parts and there are certain societal projections on me based on those parts. So, yeah, I guess I'm, you know, whatever gender you want to put on me. Uh, But it wasn't something I ever felt any attachment to and it always felt really uncomfortable even or especially in a magical or spiritual setting. So coming across this idea of gender queerness and non-binariness and was profoundly transformative for me because I had language to express an experience. A lot of people turn their nose up at this at the, the concept of identity. And it really upsets me when people get very sneery and dismissive of, oh, well, that's just, you know, like identity politics or whatever. It's like, no, identity is about who we are. Identity is about conveying something of what our experiences have been and who they have made us into to the people around us. I think that is profoundly holy, that it's sacred. And when we get snotty and and superior about it, we are telling other people, I don't care who you are. I don't care what your experiences have been. You are who I tell you you are. And I don't think there's room for that in any honest, healthy spiritual tradition. Wow, I got a little intense there. (laughs) No, I mean, I'm I'm glad that you did. I mean, I think that that is important for people to hear, you know, I think it's very important for people to hear. I want to pivot really quickly um, because we had a listener question come through or a listener comment slash question. um, And it's in related to, it's related to what we're seeing going on in our world right now uh, with protests, with the death of black community members and I just thought it was a really insightful um, thing to send to us. And I also thought it was something that you would probably have insight into um, to share as well. Um, I think that um, we're all trying to figure out how to support black communities. And, yes. um, and so this, um, this message, this listener said, hi, ladies. I love listening to your podcast and wanted to reach out to share an experience I had today. I made a post recently about using magic to empower those who are taking to the streets, protesting the brutal death of George Floyd in my post, which I'll copy down below. I mentioned that now is not the time to use magic for peace. And in those, in those frou-frou love and light kind of ways, now is the time to tap into the chaos and to bring the voices of those that are being silenced to the forefront. Maybe I didn't do a good enough job at explaining what I meant, and and accordingly it pissed some people in the witchcraft Reddit community right off. I felt policed and basically told that I could do more harm than good, and I should stick to magic for protection and peace. 
The subsequent spell I cast was to thwart the efforts of police if they tried to bring harm to those that were rightfully protesting. It was also to send strength and fierceness to those folks fighting the fight. Call me crazy, but I don't see the harm. And I think it's a little ironic that maybe I'm, maybe I'm seen as doing some rebellious magic. Personally, I think I send out power to those who are disenfranchised and a little chaos to those that would harm them to those that would harm them is the very root of magic because of the backlash I received. I feel, I felt isolated and kind of jaded by the witch community. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Here's my original post below. The post said calling all witches, spiritual folk and social justice warriors. Now is the time for chaos magic. Now is the time to pray. Now is not the time to pray for peace. The people taking to the streets need our fierce protection and empowerment. They need radical change. Send them the energy to keep fighting, to amplify their voices, and to keep them free from harm at the hands of brutal police and a system that constantly seeks to dismantle them. If things get out of hand and the people of power are using unnecessary force, may our magic wart their weapons. May our magic empower the people who are disenfranchised. May it keep them safe, but also fiercely, fiercely thwart those that seek to do them harm. If shit needs to get fucked up, so mote it be. <laughs> and I just I love that spell. <laughs> if shit needs to get fucked up, so mote it be. You know what, witches? Forget the spell I gave you at the top of the episode. This is your new, this is your new spell for the full moon. Go to it and let us know how it turned out. And I <laughs> I loved I loved that one, this listener wrote us. I felt like uh, hearing this was uh, really refreshing. Obviously, we've all seen um, opinions that are frustrating from community members. Um, and I loved that this person was like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, we're not, this is the peace, love, and light time. This is the fuck shit up time. And and I just wanted to, A, tell this person that you are not alone. I mean, <laughs> I definitely agree that that, the way that you are approaching this in putting your magical energy to empower, to elevate, to get visibility for people that need to have that to protect them and to also block people that are getting in the way of what needs to be seen, heard and said, I thought it was so powerful. What, tell me what that was in the three of you. I think that it was amazing. And I think that, you know, I, I I understand the sentiment of, you know, I want this to be resolved peacefully and I want everything to be fine. And you know what? I do too. But you know what? It's not. And it hasn't been resolved that way for hundreds of years. And it's not going to get resolved that way because we've been trying to do this peacefully for decades and yeah. nothing happens. And if you look back at any real historical change that has happened in this country, unfortunately, it has not come through peaceful discussion. It has come through conflict and it has come through people making their voice so loud that you cannot help but now realize, okay, something has to be done. So I think that, I think her spell is phenomenal. I think it's awesome. I'm absolutely going to do it myself. I, I thank her for putting that out into the community. And it makes me sad that so many people 
still feel the need to bury their head in the sand and, and act like we aren't where we are because the reality is we are where we are and we're where we need to be. And so I, I, I think it's tremendous and I'm, I'm, I understand I've seen the same kind of nasty feedback from things that I've posted. And I just, I think of myself and I think of my children and I think someday they're going to ask me, mom, what did you do when this was happening in history? And I want to be able to say, I, I did what I could do and I, and I stood and I understand understood, um, the reason behind, you know, what was happening and, understood the fact that I don't understand what, what is, what they're feeling and what they've gone through and that I can just be a voice to advocate on their behalf and hope that they'll be proud of me and know that I will have been on the right side of history. I think, and I'm very careful saying this because there's a lot of nuance there. And so I just want to say this up front that I don't want to call Haitian voodoo witchcraft because I don't think that is my label to give to it. Um, but I do think it's important to know that there are a lot of people um, that believe that the Haitian revolution was, was helped by, by working with the spirits to overthrow the French oppression, the French colonization and in French rule. So again, I'm saying that because not every uh, indigenous tradition appreciates the term of witchcraft. So I, I'm not applying that there. But what I I take from that is sometimes the work we do with our spirits and the work we do with our faith is it requires us to, um, that not everything can be resolved peacefully. And sometimes encouraging peace is the tool of the oppressor itself. Um, (laughs) You know, Richard Nixon is said to have uh, been putting the, the carpenters on the radio because their music was all happy and light as a way of subduing the unrest in the United States. And uh, that's not a that's not true peace. That is just more silence and more oppression. So um, witchcraft has always been a tool to thwart the oppressors. And so the idea that it shouldn't be is wrong. Uh, one other story I can tell is um, we were t- I was teaching a class on ethical witchcraft and ethical magic, um, whether or not that this is. Um, you know, when is, when do you need to like pull out a curse? When is it actually really, really more ethical to curse than to not? Uh, content warning about child abuse. There was a woman who heard that a uh, man in her community was sexually abusing children. And she was trying to figure out how she could help. And she'd done all the usual channels, alerting people, warning people, doing this and that and the other, whatever. This man still had access to small children. And so she cast a spell saying, if he is in proximity to a small child, and if he is going to do something to this child that is, that is abusive to this child, something needs to happen. Somebody comes, uh, he, you know, slips and falls, something interrupts it so it can't happen. Well, that man had a heart attack not too long after that. And he was alone with a child when it happened. So I dare anyone to say that what she did was unethical. Right. And so it's it's for some reason when it comes to matters of the police or matters of the government, people are more like, no, don't do that. But what people are doing is exactly what this woman did is interrupting the harm, the potential harm that is coming to someone else. And that is is not just ethical. It is required of witches 
to use magic when necessary to thwart oppression and injury toward others. Because that actually prevents more harm. If all of our stuff is about do no harm, well, there's also a lot of work that has to be done to prevent it. So off my soapbox, over and out. (laughs) (laughs) So it's been my experience that a lot of folks in the pagan, polytheist, magical occult communities, especially folks from, let's say, certain demographic backgrounds, um, you know, white people, uh, have a tendency to want to see magic as being synonymous with like prayer or meditation or the power of positive thinking, uh, you know, good vibes only. And these folks, in my experience, are often made really deeply uncomfortable by the suggestion that magic isn't any of those things. Or rather, that any of those things can be magical, but magic itself is something really different. Magic is about creating a change in the universe. Magic is about making shit happen. That's what it's for. And if you're someone who's deeply invested in things being the way they are, all this talk of change and changing the universe is going to be really scary. But Even if you're not as deeply invested, uh, the idea of change can still be really scary because human beings crave conformity and consistency and stability. And when somebody comes along clamoring for rebellion and revolution and change and chaos, that's going to upset some folks. And they're going to feel threatened by a suggestion that magic should be used to support protesters or to discourage and disempower forces of oppression because that suggestion is effectively threatening their status quo bubble, their ability to believe that everything is basically okay. The fact that people who feel that way would call themselves witches is really puzzling to me, but part of my early exposure to witchcraft came through uh, Leland's Aradia, or the Gospel of the Witches, where the goddess Diana literally sends her daughter Aradia to Earth to instruct the witch cult on, among other things, how to use witchcraft to poison their oppressors, to kill them dead. Viewed in that light, I I think the good vibes only folks can maybe make a little more room for people who want to support a pro- who want to support protesters and bring about positive change by reducing and disempowering oppression. On that note, we are not advocating people actually use magic to actually no, kill people, no. but <laughs> definitely to to aid. And I, I think that the way they said it, like if shit needs to be fucked up, right. so mote it be. Perfect. I think that's fantastic. I think that is that that's like you know my vote for best spell of twenty twenty so far. <laughs> And the best spell of 2020 goes to... If shit needs to be fucked up, so would it be. <laughs> I hope this person has a blog somewhere. <laughs> you know, I like, I uh, I messaged them and was like, hey, we're going to be talking about, you know, thank you so much for this message. We were so inspired by what you said that we're actually going to be talking about it on our podcast. Uh, and, you know, you're not alone. <laughs> like We just love everything that you just said and agree wholeheartedly. And they were so excited. It's a fantastic question. So Courtney, 
You, uh, Courtney, you wanted to mention a cause that we are supporting for June. Yes. Yes, that's correct. So uh, for the month of June, 10% of all of our Etsy sales are going to protect the sacred, which is a grassroots initiative uh, created in response to the growing COVID-19 crisis in the Navajo Nation by empowering Navajo youth as leaders and working with allies to help meet the health needs of the community. The Navajo Nation has been uh, severely impacted by COVID-19. And so there's a lot of things going on in the country right now. We cannot forget our indigenous uh, indigenous kin here. And so again, anything that you purchase from our Etsy store in June, 10% of that is going to protect the sacred. So uh, yeah, we've got, I think we've got some new things that yeah. Hillary was going to mention on our you Etsy know, we shop. Actually do have some new things that are coming out. And so pay attention to our Etsy shop. Uh, Kanani has been crafting away like a maniac. <laughs> and Kanani, do you want to talk about what we have coming up? So I have, I am on a temporary layoff right now. So I have way too much free time. And so I have been getting out all of my crafting stuff and I'm starting to, I'd made some banners. I think we still have a couple left and then uh, banners that say that witch life. And then I'm also starting to make just cards and they're cards that come with an envelope. So in other words, they're not signed by us, written in it by us. So you could buy it and then send it to a friend and it comes with a card and the envelope and then just a blank uh, message on the inside. So you could write whatever you want to whomever you would like to send it to. Um, we already have new... Dear friend, dear friend, if shit needs to be so mowed up, so mowed it be. So mowed it be, exactly. So... We, we have new ones that are coming up um, right now, actually, new cards. And then don't be surprised if every few days I'm throwing more up on the Etsy shop because this is what I'm doing now to uh, stay sane and keep my hands busy. So, Well, Misha, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, it's been really lovely having you on the podcast. Thank you for your insight and guidance. Um, and for those of you that haven't read Misha's book, get your ass and go and buy one. Where can we find, where can people find you, Misha? Uh, people can find me uh, hiding behind a cup of coffee somewhere in the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so that's you um, over a mask. there. Um, yeah, that, that's me hiding in the No, corner. Kanani, that's your reflection uh, in the mirror. It's all the same. Oh. <laughs> uh, it's, so um, uh, you can find me on my website at mishamagdalen.com. And, uh, you know, from there, there's links to my Pathios blog and my Twitter account and my Instagram, both of which are at Misha Magdalen. And, yeah, my book can be found from the Llewellyn website or your online bookseller of choice. Or your friendly local pagany occulty bookstore can probably get it for you. Brilliant. I highly recommend it. I loved the book. So please go out and read it. Um, and to our listeners, uh, thank you for staying with us today. Um, to the black community, we see you, we hear you, and we will continue to support you in any way that we can. And we totally support fucking shit up. So Moto be. So mote be. So mote so that shit. So mote that Join us on the first and third Mondays of the month for magical tools, tips, and stories about living as a witch in today's world. Find us at thatwitchlife.com for archived episodes and